bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and we have a special guest today whose work I'm sure you have read. It's Martin Lucas, editor-in-chief of The Breach, that's been doing a lot of good work, especially reporting on legacy media. To be honest, The Breach is what Canada Land should be. No comment, but thank you very much, Erica. (laughs) Martin, welcome. Thanks for having me, Erica. It's great to be here. So first of all, tell us about The Breach. Tell us about how it came together and uh, what your purpose is. Ooh, the Breach was launched almost two and a half years ago now. Wow, time time goes by fast. Um, we were just launching when we met. Martin and I have met in, in person in Montreal, and I think you were just starting to launch. I think that might be true. Yeah. We, yes, we launched in 2021. A whole bunch of people kind of came together, felt that there was a moment that felt right to launch a new media outlet. I mean, there are already so many great outlets and it feels like it's a renaissance happening right now, which is great. But we felt like there was, there was a, there was an opportunity for an outlet that was, that had a campaigning style that did a combination of video and investigations. um, And that was truly unapologetic about having bold left-wing politics, but still do incredible, rigorous journalism. And so, yeah, we've been trying to do that as best we can. And it's been going great. And we've had a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we've broken some big stories, sparked a parliamentary probe into big pharma, having the government over a barrel earlier this year, which was a real highlight. Um, And also we try to keep it irreverent and not take ourselves too seriously, which I think journalists do a lot. Oh, totally. Journalists are the worst at we take ourselves too seriously. I personally try not to, but whatever. Like, second, so first of all, what about the left-wing media landscape did you, like, what about it made you feel like, hey, like, something has to be done here? Are you trying to get me to talk critically about our peers? (laughs) We'll do it in generalities so nobody's like subtweeted. We're not going to subtweet. Well, I just think. Or maybe we will. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I mean, our goal, I don't know if we always accomplish it, but this was certainly our goal was to do left wing journalism in a way that actually speaks, speaks to people beyond the choir, you know. Um, And one of the ways I think we've done that is we have a really nice website. We invest a lot of energy in the aesthetics um, we have an amazing uh, art director. Shout out to Andira. And so this this stuff, you know, it, it's not like Ravel's website. No offense to Ravel's journalism, but it, you know, you you enjoy being on the site. You enjoy looking at the visuals. That's a key part of what we do. I okay. So I wrote this this piece on CBC this week, right? And I spent two paragraphs talking about how crappy their digital media was. When I say crappy, the cbc.ca website, like, are you serious right now? Are you serious? Because WordPress used to have those cards in, like, those types of of websites in, like, 2011, 2010. Okay? Second of all, why do I have to scroll 
down to the end to get to radio, CBC Radio, which is your flagship. That's your radio should be. Martin, it is a nightmare. It is a (laughs) nightmare of navigation. I'm so sick of these media companies not providing us the digital experience. Yeah. It is 2023. CTV's news, you could tell I'm frustrated. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. CTV, okay, CTV, its font and the color of its font is just, I'm like, how do old people read this? How does anybody read this? It's too light. It's too, the font is too heavy on a lot of plates. Anyway, I have my no, no that and one of my favorite moments in our in our brief lifetime has been when the walrus um, walrus's editor in chief said that in a prestigious lecture on journalism that the breach has better graphic design than most of the legacy outlets. That's yeah. good, and we have a budget that's a you know probably a probably what Andrew Coyne makes at the Globe and Mail. You know that's our entire mm-hmm. budget. So, so that's part of what we do, and then I think. But why did you think that was important? Why do you think, as a journalist, why do you think the aesthetics are important? And I'm asking you this because most journalists would say it's about the work. And well, I'm like, no, it's about delivery. Well, the okay? truth is, the truth is, is that I had I had to have people explain this to me because I am I'm a I'm a bit of a Luddite, a bit of an old old school type. Elder millennial, everybody. Elder, exactly. Elder, a geriatric millennial. So I only know how to write kind of and but but this is you know you had this is a this is also a business I mean it's a nonprofit um but it is you have to understand business and marketing and everyone's mostly on their phones now reading our stuff and they just you, they it needs to be a good experience um so I had to reluctantly and begrudgingly learn this stuff and I, we had great people on the team who know this stuff better than I do so um, so that was that was part of it. Um, and then I think having an outlet that can straddle the political um, landscape between movement politics and electoral politics. I think that's missing in this country. The thing the thing is, is so I you know, one of my theories of media change or media growth is that in the States and in the UK, you know, prominent left wing media outlets like Jacobin who I, you know, I think is uneven content, but, and in the, in the UK, Novara Media, who I really admire. And we, um, have you tried Byline Times? I've seen their stuff too. Yeah. I'm um, curious about Byline Times. But, but, but I was struck by how Novara and Jacobin both had these kinds of meteoric growth after you had political insurgencies within the social democratic parties. So really, in, when Corbyn took over Labour Party, yeah, you know, I was offering socialist politics, and when Bernie had his run on the Democratic uh, Party in the U.S., you know, in Canada, in Canada, we have an NDP, as you've written about really well, um, is pretty lackluster, and um, I do think that you're not going to see any left-wing media outlets in Canada really thrive and grow in their audience until we have eco-socialist insurgents insurgent politics within the NDP. And so my view was that we, you know, we need to have an outlet that's ready to take advantage of that and speak to those politics and explain it to people and channel energy when that happens to come around. It hasn't we haven't had that moment in Canada, but we're certainly due for it. And I think when Pierre Polyev wins the next election as he likely will, 
that need will be even more important. I completely agree. Like even I'm prepping for that because there is a problem with left-wing media and it also does not, it also filters into left-wing politics. Um, I think that what has been a disservice is the lack of that voice. We do not have a robust variety in media and we don't get, it's amazing to me how people talk about, about the marketplace of ideas, but part of the marketplace is absent. You know what I mean? And there really is like what I'm seeing from this whole Gaza thing is that, or Gaza crisis, whatever you want to humanity, like genocide, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm is that all of a sudden I feel like there's this need for the left wing to assert itself. I don't know if we're all meeting the moment. I hope mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like you are. But I don't know if we're meeting the moment. And that bothers me. It bothers me about left wing politics in general, which is made to kind of I don't know. I feel like the NDP is just so apologetic for being left wing. I feel like if they, I wish they could be apologetic about being left wing because then they'd be left wing. But I, I think there are individuals within the party who are who are left wing. But I think, I mean that your statement about the need to rise to the moment is so important. And I think the NDP and the people who run the party, the center, the brass, are not rising to that moment. No, um, they're not. And. But I think there's a huge appetite in the country for that kind of politics. Um, and I also think that's one of the reasons why we started the breach is to is to to fill that appetite. I, I think there's so many inherent limitations to reaching that audience. We can't. I mean, never mind all the latest stuff with C18. We don't have access to Instagram anymore, to Facebook. We almost lost access to, to Google. Um, but that that is our core challenge is getting our content and our writing in front of people. And it's extremely difficult because there's, you know, when you speak about the, you know, the supposed wonders of the marketplace. Um, we don't I hate the, that, by the way. I we don't have that the capital. Fucking... We don't. We don't have the. We don't have the capital and the resources to actually get our stuff in front of people because we have to, um, you know, navigate the strictures of uh, social media, you know, platforms. Um, but electoral politicians don't have that excuse you know they have a ready audience and i think the ndp is um despite you know some really stellar politicians within the party who don't happen to set the agenda i think that the 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 party center is is failing um and pierre polyev is eating their lunch right now yeah this need to run to the center is infuriating okay I do not understand the need. I do because conventional wisdom, and I'm using that in quotations because you all can't see, but um, a lot of conventional wisdom is dead. Yeah. I mean, they're running, they're running to the center and the people in the center are the pundits and the very serious um, media people and they're running away from their base. Um, you know, Canadians 
are overwhelmingly progressive. The, you know, this country has essentially a social democratic character. Yeah. If anything, if you read the polls closely, as, I, as I'm a, a nerd and I like to do, Canadians have actually become more progressive on a lot of like the core social democratic tenants, you know, support for public ownership and, uh, you know, a strong welfare state. And, um, and so that, that political base for, you know, left-wing populist politics is there, but they've just been running, running away from, they've been running away from it for 30 years, um, because they got captured by neoliberal ideology. Um, they, they they thought it was easier to just moderate and win votes that way um and you know that neoliberal compromise is now showing itself to be utterly bankrupt utterly um unfit for the political moment and it has spawned an entire um new era of right-wing politics that are just feeding off of um the legacy of inequality and misery and diminished standard of living that that neoliberal era has created, and now yes, we're, we're we're really reaping the 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 poisonous uh, fruit of that era. I feel like neoliberalism was the gateway to like libertarianism, which is the gateway to like fascism. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. You know, and our our move to the center right because we did move to the center right as a country. We mm-hmm. are at the center right right now. I don't care what Trudeau says. I don't care how people characterize him as as progressive. He is not. He's a neoliberal. And he is a neoliberal who drapes himself in progressive language and progressive ideology to get elected. Here's the thing with me. If I were looking, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, obviously, progressive politics sell even with a neoliberal underbase. So why not just sell progressive politics writ large? You know what I mean? Like, I don't... Well, it's funny. It's by everyone. I don't understand why. Everyone's selling progressive. What's funny, I mean, the way I see the the last few years of the last decade of Canadian politics... But why are progressives? That's why. Well, that's the that's the funny thing. I mean, so so Trudeau sold progressive politics to come to win office in 2015. And he's, you know, tried to reboot that model at various times with less and less success. And now, ironically, Pierre Polyev is also selling the semblance of progressive populist politics. And right. both of them both of them have done it better than the NDP has. Um <laughs> which is what's truly, you know, that a bit of a, a mind fuck. Yeah. Um, um yeah, I mean Polyev is a much more capable actor, because that's all he is, uh, than Jagmeet Singh. Um a much better, you know, fake populist. Um, so we really have to get our act together. Yeah, but I feel like legacy media has done a lot to shun progressive politics. If you look at, and this is where you come in, this is where the breach comes in. And um, I know I've quoted you a couple times because I've just found that your pieces hit the mark. Do you understand that I am seeing more breach articles shared, right, than or people like responding to them on Twitter than I've seen some legacy media? Now, this is probably my Twitter. So my Twitter is obviously skewed. 
But I like do follow Andrew Coyne to dunk on him. So, <laughs> which he's easily dunkable. Let me just say, he has been uh, especially lately. Yeah, Palestine. Oh, I listen. I didn't know so many people were so murderous. <laughs> That's a, a sad but accurate description. Yeah. Now, is it me or does power want this war? I mean, power most certainly wants this war. Um, and power generally doesn't doesn't give two hoots about uh, brown and black and Arabic people. Mm-hmm. The di- dying is un- unworthy unworthy victims of our imperial allies. I mean, that's the truth. So, and that's the thing that I feel some people are thinking about subconsciously. If you could do this to brown people outside of our country, what would you do to us inside the country where you have more control? And I think that is something that everybody needs to think about and think about like the consequences of this, not only for for Palestinians and Gaza, but for us here. Martin, you are a Jewish man. And I, that's material, okay? Because your politics are so left-wing and a lot of the stuff that you've been uncovering is um, the anti-Palestinian bias, I would see that, I would say that I have seen through legacy media. And yet you've bucked this trend to, like, go well, into that. I mean... I mean, we we Jews have had, always had a disproportionate um, representation in progressive and left wing movements. Let's not forget that. So, Explain. you know what I mean. You know, Jewish Jewish communities are not a monolith, and the traditions of Judaism that I most identify with um, are the traditions that always side with the dispossessed and the downtrodden. Right. And you know, there are so many great revolutionary leaders in centuries recent and past who are Jewish. So um, I don't think of it as bucking that. I, th- I think of it as as living up to those Jewish traditions, secu- secular Jewish traditions um, to do the work that 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 we're doing. Um, but it just just to speak to your other point about how what what, you know, those those, you know, very serious voices in the Canadian political and media establishment who. Yeah who are saying what they're saying and covering for Israel's crimes, what would they do to people here? What have they done to people here? You know, yeah. I mean, to, to my mind, all this talk of, you know, can, can, can the Canadian government supporting Israel because they share share the same values, which is a, a refrain we hear all the time. To me, that has always spoken most deeply to the the settler colonial violence at the core of this state we live in. Um, and the political project in in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where the those deep affinities uh, between these two political um, settler colonial projects come come from when it comes to the elite in this country and how they mm-hmm. how they think of Israel. Um, I mean, of course, the Israeli example is complex as all these things are. Um, I mean, the great tragedy in Israel and Palestine is that, um, as the great Edward Edward Said used to say, the Palestinians are victims of victims. 
you know, um, a, a nation of people who were the, you know, the very recent uh, victims of an incredible genocide, uh, who then in turn trampled on and dispossessed um, and now are, you know, committing absolutely heinous crimes to the Palestinians. Um, and holding holding that tension, I think, is uh, really important in understanding how to navigate uh, this moment. Um, That's a good I, point. How do you navigate this moment? By the way, I just want to note that it's a lot of people of color who have been called, who have been dispossessed economically, uh, lost their jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is people of color who are being "quote unquote" called out for anti-Semitism, unquote. And I find that fucking interesting. Yeah, I find that the elites, especially of Canadian media, I saw on Twitter, they were dunking on everybody of color. You know, and that concerns me that I see that the elites are punching down and like they're roaring. And that concerns me a lot for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think that the when when anti-Semitism is weaponized against critics of Israel, it is used against everyone. But undoubtedly, racialized people uh, have the brunt of it. Um, because racism just super supercharges that weaponization of anti-Semitism. Yeah, and I'm I'm worried about the far right running up the middle. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like they they are beneficiaries of a lot of this. I mean, they are in that. One of the things the weapon one of the, one of the things that grieves me the most when anti-Semitism is weaponized mm-hmm. is that it's a bit of the symptom of the boy who cried wolf. You know, the, yeah. the more you shout about it when it's not the case, the more you weaken it as a as an allegation. And um, anti-Semitism does exist. Yeah, and I mean, I can just I can tell you, I was talking to a pollster the other day who told me. Um, that they did a poll in 2020, which never actually ended up being released, but in which the their client was asking them to poll the question to Canadians, do you think Jews have too much power? And three out of 10 people said yes. So that's, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, that's almost a third. That's almost a third of Canadians. Um, so so you're seeing these 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 tropes dredged up because somebody said something on Twitter that I was I was like, yeah, they responded to me and they said, oh, first it was the right wing, you know, the right wing's anti-Semitism of the globalists seems now to be secondary. If you know what I mean. Say more. How do you mean uh, secondary? It's secondary in the sense that Everybody was paying attention. Well, not everybody, but it's like the right wing has, or the far right has been able to nestle itself in between anti Semitism and Islamophobia hmm. because both of them are on the rise for a reason. And I don't actually think it's like Muslims 
like putting Molotov cocktails in, um, you know, Jewish schools and stuff. I actually don't think so. I feel like there's a lot going on to stir up stuff in here. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to don't want to speculate, but if I were, I am spec- if I were, if I were to speculate, I would ag- tend to agree with you, and I imagine it's mostly anti-Semites on the far right who are taking advantage of the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and using using you know the the outcry um, for Palestinian rights as a cover for um, for this. Yeah, um, it might it might not be. Who knows? But but that's my hunch, and 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 um, it's my hunch too. We're all we're just speculating here. Yeah, we do this on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, one thing I find this dis- uh, dis- one of the disturbing elements of the f- of the f- the of the kind of far right upsurge has been the the this emerging alliance between a far-right Israeli government and mm-hmm. far-right activists and politicians who are anti-Semitic. I mean, this is, this isn't, this isn't particularly new there. You know, the Israeli, the right wing of the Israeli state has often found common cause. I mean, the most recent example of course is Elon Musk after tweeting all kinds of anti-Semitic shit. Right. Right. Paying, uh, you know, a, a visit of respects to Israel meeting with Netanyahu. Um, um, or, for instance, like, you know, in in this spring when the um, one of the Israeli ministers visited Canada and basically um, ignored all the typical state to state relations and ended up me- meeting with Charles McVetie, one of the far right evangelists, you know, who who who, you know, they're these these people are anti-Semites. I mean, they think yeah. of Jews as the people they consort with think that the Holocaust was like uh uh, God ordained um, exercise to encourage Jews to 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 go to Israel so they could expedite yeah. the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. Um, and these are the people that the Israeli state, the Israeli coalition government, is making common cause with. So, so I find I find that as a Jew and as a observer deeply disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. And but I, I think the way to navigate this moment is to. Is is with integrity and absolute moral clarity about our opposition to all forms of racism that are interconnected. You yeah. know, um, yeah. anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, Islamophobia—they are all interconnected products of white supremacist uh, yeah. systems, and you don't get to cherry pick what you're concerned about. Right. Um, if you want to fight one, you have to fight all of them. Boom. And that's how we win. You know, we have to have a commitment to collective liberation. Um, and I think in this moment, people get, I understand it, people get tribalistic, you know, um, and they lose sight of that. Um, but I think if we do, we lo- we all lose together. I feel like there's a general malaise in this country and probably across the Western world that kind of comes out of the pandemic. And there was 2019 and then every, every in 2021, by the time or 2022, everything, it's like we all emerged and we're like, oh fuck, this is fucked up. There is a 
class disparity in terms of reporting, right? Like, and in terms of media. So, for example, if the workers are disproportionately shouldering these layoffs, that is class discrimination. Where are the executives? Why are their heads rolling? They made all the bad decisions that got us here. Journalism should be poking and punching at power. They should yeah. be punching up. So this activism or advocacy journalism is bullshit because journalists are supposed to be activists for the greater public. We yeah. are. I mean, not to not to toot our own horn, but one of my favorite articles that we published this year um, that is by far the most read story on our website was a piece that we entitled Grocery giants are screwing Canadians and farmers have the proof. Like yep. literally no, no, you know, the National Farmers Union, an amazing union of, of, of farmers had submitted data to the House of Commons committee that was studying this issue um, that basically exploded the, the story that the grocery giants have been telling, you know, about, oh, it's not them, you know, costs are going up across the board. And farmers had the proof that showed they have not made any more money over the last several years when it comes to the basic outputs that grocery retailers are selling. No, um, it's all Cargill in them. It's all made like industrialized. The, the processing, yeah. it's the transport, and it's the it's the retailers. And at the end of the day, they're making all the profits and farmers are getting screwed yeah. alongside Canadians. And we exactly. were- we were literally the only people who who were willing to report on these numbers, and we had a, like a quarter million people read this article, um, because people people know in their bones that they're getting fucked. Yes, lead in this country, but there's no one in the media, as you point out, that is reflecting that back to them, um, because yeah. you know the corporate outlets and our public broadcaster are beholden to a, an elite agenda, um, and the people often within them certainly at the very top, uh, share far more in common with the elites that they're supposed to be scrutinizing than the ordinary people that are getting screwed. Absolutely. Elite. And when we say elite, we're, we're talking about powerful people, right? Well, this social, cir- this social circuit is what lubricates power. I, remember, I forget when I learned this, but maybe 10, 10 years ago, someone told me that every winter the kind of top tier journalists in Ottawa have like a soccer league with um, a lot of politicos and operatives and staffers. And I was like, what? Like, you know, you play soccer with these guys? Like, come on. Like, this, this, this these are the people you're supposed to be scrutinizing, not like, yeah. you know, tossing a ball around on the, the field. Yeah. And that, and that, that makes it revealing. That, that makes a difference. People it say it's no, oh, no, it's everything. It's everything. I don't think people realize how much doing those things form connections. Mm-hmm. And connections are really important in, yes, in this town in Ottawa, but everywhere. And so yeah. there is this, this belief of access. Like Canadian journalists will give up all their principles for access, which is mm. wild because I'm like, you sold out your principles just to get a moment. Like, I don't, mm. I don't get that. 
like, at least get paid, okay? Are you all fumbling the bag? Okay. But I mean, like, there's something struck. There's something structural about it too. You know, I think it's mm. it's that the kind of jobs these journalists have to do requires them to have that access. Right. If they don't have that access, they can't do their jobs. And so it's like, is it's a car before the horse thing, right? It's like it's not even about ultimately about whether they have a kind of moral or political compass that they have to shed. Like mm-hmm. you get into that, you get into that position, and then you can't do otherwise. Like you, you have to do what it takes to maintain that access. You know what I mean? Um, and it, it like de- denudes them of any kind of opportunity to be critical. Uh, the kind of critical that takes you beyond the, what the bounds of permissible, like, you know, debate and discourse. And I think that's what that kind of social lubrication so often does. It's not like these people don't at the end of the day, offer some critiques, but the kind of critiques they offer are very much within the the boundaries of, you know, acceptable debate, like, you know, um, you know, who, who got who when it comes to parliamentary minutiae and like, but not, yeah. not, not when it comes to issues of substance, like, is this war a criminal enterprise that, you know, is unspeakable like that, you know, it like is happening in Gaza. Um, no one will say that in the mainstream media. Um, or if they do, they'll get they'll erase the tweet very quickly. Um, like Evan Dyer, I, I like a few weeks ago, had this incredible tweet about how the Israeli army blew up the um, legislative building in, in Gaza. And he was like super critical. And I was very impressed. This is very, very rare to see, you know. He's like, why, why, did, the, why did the Israeli military have to do that? You know, they had, sh- they had shown photos with the soldiers inside like a few days before. So they had captured it. So they didn't need to blow it up. And then within a few hours, like, wow, that's quite a tweet. I might, I might even retweet a CBC journalist for once. And then within an hour, it had been taken down. You got to screenshot those. <laughs> you know, you got to take a screenshot. Yeah. Of those things. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure from executives. I, I do realize that. But let's talk about more about your reporting, Martin. Because sure. Let me just say, my the first piece I read from the breach was entitled Canada Building Global Network of Military Bases in Aggressive Ship. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Not because I love military or defense politics, but I'm going to read the first couple of line, uh, passages. The Canadian military has spent the past 10 years establishing a global network of bases in order to, quote, project project combat power, unquote, under the influence and leadership of the United States documents obtained by the breach reveal. The bases in Kuwait, Senegal, and Jamaica, I was like, Jamaica? (laughs) Okay have been used as staging grounds for military operation and, quote, counterterrorism, unquote, trainings throughout Africa, the Middle East, and the Caribbean. According to government documents obtained through the access of information requests and interviews with key former Canadian military planners, the locations and small sizes, small size of the bases were heavily influenced by U.S. military strategy. And it goes on to talk about 
Canada's role as uh, as a military ally to the United States and how it's increasing. And something about, I think the RCMP were involved in this, um, this global reach stuff. Um, and you went on to just talk about the Afghanistan mission um, and military spending, et cetera, et cetera. This story captured me and I didn't expect it to, Martin. Mm. Because like I said, I'm not really a military kind of gal, right? Mm -hmm. But I was like, this is interesting. And I read it and I felt like I came away more informed in a real way. And that I haven't felt that in a long, long time. And so I thank you for writing that piece. I thank you for all the work you're doing. And I'm... You could go on and talk about how you came about that story, but it is one of my favorites of all time. Oh, that's that's super kind. Thank you. That's the most that we can ever uh, ever wish for in doing this work. Um, that story has an interesting back um, backstory because I actually pitched it to. I haven't said told this to anyone, but I pitched it to the Globe and Mail. Um, a f- actually, a few years before I. And the Globe accepted it, mm-hmm. and which was rare because they don't they don't work with freelancers all that often, especially ones that are left wing. But the story was, you know, it it, it interested you, and it it clearly interested the, the some Globe editor as well. And um, I was pretty excited as a younger uh, freelancer. And then I got a call from the the editor um, that oh, there are some concerns you know, within the the newsroom about this. And I later Concerns are usually a bad... The word concerns... Yeah, quote unquote. Nothing substantial, just concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a good sign. (laughs) It's not a good sign, but... um, But then I later found out that that clearly the the piece stepped onto the turf of someone else. Uh, Steve Chase, actually. I'm happy to name him. Um, who covers a lot of defense and foreign military. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> and, um, and I think he had butted up against the editor and it ended up getting killed. And they gave me like a, they offered me like a kill fee of $100. And I was like, whatever, what? I, don't, I, I don't need it. That's um, it? Yeah, that's all. By the way, the Globe and Mail is cheap as fuck, okay? Yeah. They are cheap motherfuckers. Anyway, go on. Um, I think their publisher too makes twice what our annual budget is. Um, yeah, I think he's eight hundred thousand dollars a year. What? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's I um, mean you know, he's owned by the the richest man in Canada, so you know. Oh, the top he, sense, yeah. Uh, he re- he re- rewards his publisher well. Um, anyways, and it, it, I guess I sat on the piece for a few years, and and strikingly, no one else had reported on it. By the time I got around to publishing it, is like one of the first pieces that we did at the breach. Um. And yeah, I think one of the, I mean, one of the, one of the, our aspirations is definitely to puncture some of these m- myths that the elites in this country, pro- you know, propagate. And what, one of the biggest is that Canada is, you know, a peacekeeping, gentle, um, you know, honest broker, middle power. Lester B. Pearson. 
you know, we definitely that is a little Lester B. Pearson created the like the like post World War Canadian ethos or something. Yeah, and what's funny is, I mean, um, in Vietnam, also in Palestine, um, since that's on our, all our minds, Pearson played an incredibly reactionary role in uh, ensuring that Canada played far from a even honest role uh, when it came to policy, but but had had Canada very snugly uh, operating as a kind of wingman for the U.S. Um, when it came to aiding and abetting Israeli aggression and impunity um, towards Palestinians. Um, and this piece, yeah, I mean, this piece tracks how Canada has basically like, you know, Paul, Paul, the top policymakers are basically looking at the map of global U.S. empire and throwing pins on the places where they can most effectively serve serve that empire. So, you know, there is a so-called arc of instability, according to U.S. policymakers, mm-hmm. uh, along the equator in the Caribbean and in North Africa and over to Asia, where Canada can be of service um, in the kind of counterinsurgency wars of the past 20 years and as is expected of the of the next decades. Um, of course, we can't call them that. You know, in, in this case, the government insisted these are not bases. Uh, but when you look at their description and the way that the you know Department of National Defense talks about them, they just come up with euphemisms um, for bases like lily pads. Make it sound like light and nice lily pads. Lily pads. Lily pads. Um, but they're basically small military bases that can serve as a jumping off point for larger scale interventions on the model of Afghanistan. Um, uh, and that worked so well. That worked out so well for for us and for Afghani's. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, you know, this, this, this tracks broadly with, um, you know, as capital in Canada has become more internationalized, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Canadian capitalists have asserted themselves independently of the U S. Um, and that has meant that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, politics off politics follows on economic interests. And it has meant that that the Canadian state has taken on a far more um, armed neoliberal warrior mentality um, when it comes to how it conducts itself uh, abroad, which has meant, you know, forget those peacekeeping missions, even though peacekeeping missions were always uneven and often served imperial interests. But now it's like, no, now our boys are just fighting real wars, you know, in the military uh, uh, lingo. so you've seen that, you know, um, in the kind of preparations the government is undertaking for much more aggressive counterinsurgency wars. Undoubtedly, in the global south, nations of people have long felt a kinship and allyship with Palestine, and and I, I can see that here as well. And I think generationally, definitely, especially among younger people, there's been just an outpouring of solidarity with Palestinians, which has been great to see. Um, I- I feel it started with the millennials, though. Like a more mass, like it started growing mm-hmm. with the millennials. Like there were always the usual suspects, like I said. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I feel like it it started to subtly grow. And then all of a sudden, Gen Z, the, the younger millennials and Gen Z are like, no, we're not. No, not that fuck shit. Mm-hmm. You know? And they're telling it to us on TikTok. <laughs> 
TikTok yeah. is the place for this stuff. I, I know all the all the Gen Z uh, members of the Breach team have been working hard on me. They should bre- bre- breaking me down. I texted you and I'm like, your TikTok is on fire. And I was like, I can take no credit for that whatsoever. Well, whoever you have on your team, shout out to the video team, the social media team, the TikTok team. You all are doing great work. You're doing wonderful, sweetie. As I'll, uh... I'll, I'll pass it on to them. It'll <laughs> <laughs> just be another uh, notch in their belt as they, uh, they, for come, them. they come for me. How hard it is. Excuse me. Legacy media has not even figured out TikTok. Yet you oh. have. It's true. No, it's pretty abysmal seeing some of those uh, mainstream outlets try to do TikTok. You guys do TikTok like Navarra Media. Nice. That's a high compliment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you come across these stories about journalists in... Did people just send you stuff? What's happening? Well, we did one piece, we did one piece initially that was a kind of um, empirical media data, media analysis about... CTV, where we just, we sim, it was quite simple and anyone could do it. We basically tracked and counted how many, uh, with a few metrics, um, what CV, CTV's reportage was like. We looked mm. at the national, the national news uh, show and found that, you know, there were 65% more Israeli voices than Palestinian ones. They were granted more time in terms of duration of interviews than Palestinians were granted. And then we did a little qualitative analysis as well um, and looked at the the way they were presented. So often it was Israeli voices that were given a chance to provide substantive analysis, whereas Palestinian voices were just allowed to uh, testify to their experience very briefly, but not provide the kind of political analysis. As one, as one person we spoke to said, for a later CTV story, uh, Palestinian guests are... are only brought on a cry and nothing more oh it sounds like us yeah like seriously it's amazing how many of these tactics especially by media i am seeing as parallel to the black experience Mm -hmm. it is so parallel to me you know like like we're only allowed to cry we're not allowed to state an opinion that is against power Mm-hmm. Um, they only call us for racism. Um, a black person cannot be an expert in chemistry or anywhere else. Um, it's just like I'm seeing people even question pa- Palestinian intellectuals and question their intellectualism. Mm-hmm. And that is just an outgrowth of white supremacy, I know. But the the point is, is that the tactics are so recognizable mm-hmm. to a lot of us that we're like, yeah, I can. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh huh. For example, the adultification of Palestinian children mm-hmm. is exactly what I can like relate to just like as a black person. Yeah. And so it's amazing to me how many of these tactics are just the same. Yeah. It's been it's been an interesting exercise to to do stories that make that argument incontrovertible in data. So we actually yeah. have, we have a bunch of stuff lined up uh coming out next week and in the weeks to come 
we did another um we did another kind of taxonomization of how Canadian newspapers treat Palestinian versus Israeli death. Right. Um, exactly. So, and you won't be surprised to find out that of course there's a deep um double standard in whose lives are valued, whose lives the killers of which are identified. Yeah. Um why are the white people holding on to this Israel thing? Not a small question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, no, this is one of my, it's not one of my bigger questions because settler colonialism, as you said earlier in the podcast, mm-hmm. but still, they're, they're doing a little bit, they're doing the most. No, undoubtedly, I, like I think for the white power structure, Israel has always been this outpost, you know? Um, I mean, we did this, we did this, we did this piece about Harper actually this week, uh, Stephen Harper. I saw that. Who was, who has got his hands in this venture capitalist fund that has hundreds of millions of dollars invested in Israeli startups, defense, military, intelligence, all kinds of dystopian tech stuff that they're developing in that in that incubator that is the mil- Israeli military occupation of Palestinian territories. Um, and he, he talks specifically about how it's a continuation of his work. And actually, I don't think, we, I don't think we've had a, a leader, a prime minister in Canada, who was so, um, who was so frank about the, the way that um, white empire, and in, his, in Harper's view, I mean, he was like a nostalgist for British empire, um, how that Br- British imperial project um, has deep ties and alliances with the Israeli um, settler nation. Um, and, Are you talking about Balfour? I mean, going all the way back to Balfour, and I think yeah. that the the you know the fact that um, Zionism was a sanction British sanctioned political project meant that in we had a very different trajectory here in Canada than in the United States, which has affected mm-hmm. like, you know Because of the British. Basically. Because of the British. White white settlers, but also it also has meant that Jewish Canadians have are are more Zionist than American uh I've Jews. noticed that. I have yeah, noticed I mean, that born- Jewish Canadians are more conservative than American Canadian American Jewish I would I would finesse that it's not that they're more conservative but they are more Zionist so Canadian Jews are also overwhelmingly liberal um the same way American Jews are like small l liberal um but there has always been greater political attachment to Israel among Canadian Jews because for so long um Zionism supporting Zionism was was one and the same as supporting British Empire because Zionism was such a core part of the British Imperial project. Whereas, oh. this, whereas in the states, you know, the biggest Jewish movement, American American reformism, was anti-Zionist until as late as 1942. You know, oh. um, and of course, the Holocaust. Once the the full scope of the Holocaust was understood, you know, people made an understandable accommodation with that. Uh, with Zionism, but but in Canada, to this day, um, the polls bear this out. Um, far more Jews are emotionally attached to Israel. Far more Canadian Jews visit Israel. Um, mm. 
and and so that's something to be to be reckoned reckoned with. Um, that said, you know, even Canadian Jews, I know you you had, you you mentioned that you might want to talk about this, and, mm. but you're on a roll. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, Canadian Jews too. Like, you know, it, the the last poll is done about. Jewish attitudes towards Israel that was done this past summer by uh, J Space Canada. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. If you know Canadian Jews are critical and increasingly critical of the Israeli government, um, I think two. I think it was that ha- half as many or twice as many Canadian Jews um, don't support the is- illegal settlements in the occupied territories. Don't mm-hmm. support the annexation of Palestinian land. Um, and so that is very heartening and, it um, um, a, a, you know, a great sign. I think that the, the current war, or I should say the Hamas attack, um, has, I think impacted that though. I don't think it will change. I don't think it will change those longer term trends of younger Jews, both in America and here becoming increasingly critical of what the Israeli government is doing. And I think and that's ho- I think that's hopeful. I just wonder how much of that has been um thing, you know, move like movement build it. Um so we're talking about I don't know more. We're talking about missing and murdered. We're talking about truth and reconciliation. We're talking about you know anti blackness and all the things, all the stuff that progressives have been building yeah i just wonder if it's got to be part of the it's got to be part of it is my point yeah i think progressive and left-wing ideas are in the air um they're cool in a way they weren't 10 20 years ago and i think among you know young people are influenced by that and i would add to that too the organizing that's been done by progressive Jewish organizations in Canada, like Independent Jewish Voices, I think has been doing amazing work. They have been, um, yeah. And I think what's been really nice and is a difference from past, you know, Israeli wars on Gaza over the last 10, 15 years is that I have never seen the media affording critical left-wing Jews as much space. So that's re- like... That's that's really nice to see, and and IJV is yes. really stepping stepping into that. Yes, and, um, yes, yes. I feel like the the the. Listen, I know black people aren't a monolith. I know Jewish people cannot be a monolith, and there. No, the is... old the old joke is a uh, every for every two Jews you have three opinions. <laughs> so no, we are famously not a monolithic. People. It's exactly, but I only see sort of one representation well represented and i we can see we can see that there's more we could see that that jewish people even orthodox jewish people are like what the fuck you know okay i see your face and i feel like you're going to nuance that well all, I was going to say this. I have a whole book on my shelf that's about the the politics around Zionism and anti-Zionism of the Orthodox community. It's a trip to go into that. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some trippy, like Naturai Kartai is a whole Orthodox um, sect that is uh, actually a big population here in Montreal and New York who are anti-Zionist, but 
But I actually, I mean, just a small pet peeve. They're not anti-Zionist because they have are, have sympathies for the Palestinian people. No, no. Um, they're anti-Zionist because they think that the creation of a secular state in the Middle East is a forcing of the hand of God. And yeah. often, just one of my pet peeves is often naive leftists will put these people on a pedestal. There, I've seen a few videos go viral of them like speaking at rallies. And I, I always have to insist these people aren't allies. Palestinians are just pawns in their game, unfortunately, um, to bring down the state of Israel uh, because they just think that that's a it's a it's a sacrilege. Um, mm. So anyway, that's what my face was doing. I was just thinking of all my little pet peeves. Um, but uh, no, it's been remarkable to see how until now organizations like Sija, um, which is a very right wing lobby organization has had the monopoly on yes. Jewish expression. And I think they have, because Israel's crimes are so gruesome in Gaza um, and they are losing the international PR war, uh, organizations like Sija have, are often overplaying their hand and um, acting incredibly irresponsibly in their own PR work. And I think it has undermined their status um, in the eyes of the media as well, the mainstream media. And it has meant that now organizations like IJV that have been kind of consist consistently for many years doing solid under the radar work are now finally having their moment and getting tons of media coverage. And it's really great to see because it also shows, it also shows other Canadians that that CJ doesn't represent where majoritarian Jewish opinion is in this country. Mm -hmm. IJV are much more close to, uh, where most Jews stand in this country. All right, Martin, thank you for clearing that up for us because, you know, some of us are confused. You know? <laughs> and I'm here for to to learn with everybody, right? So first of all, I'll send you a pitch at some point. <laughs> I look forward to it. Finally, we, we have to get your byline in the breach. I you know. You can't so, only be right for the hell times. I know, I know. So we'll talk about that offline. Um, but I am so happy that you made time for this podcast. And I congratulate you in the work that you're doing. It really is valuable work. And like, I think that there's something to be said about that, that this is a movement building time. And not just we... Uh, we report on politics time. That's not what it's all about. And I feel like you all get that. So Martin, where can people find you online? Regrettably, they can find me on Twitter. Um, You're on Twitter. Oh, I just followed you back. Yes. <laughs> at um, Martin underscore Lukacs. But most importantly, please check out the work of The Breach. Uh, and you can find us at breachmedia.ca. And we're on all the social platforms that we're still able to be on. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you, Erica, and you too. You keep up your amazing, amazing work. Good. Well, we'll talk offline. Don't worry. We'll you have will. a tete-a-tete, -tete, as they say in Montreal. Look forward to it. All right, Martin. Have a wonderful week. My bad and bullshit.